Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a pre-doctoral fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics, where I study the explosive deaths of stars. I'm Kirsten Boley, and I'm a fourth-year grad student at The Ohio State University, where I study how elemental abundances impact planet formation and evolution. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm not quite ready to be a fifth-year PhD student, <laughs> so we're just going to say I'm a PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 57, Hot Planet Summer. Spring is ending and summer vacation is just around the corner. And for some, that means grilling burgers and hot dogs on your brand new Weber Spirit 2 three-burner liquid propane grill. Oh, so you did end up taking that Weber sponsorship, didn't you? <laughs> I'm not allowed to say. For others, <laughs> it means throwing on your floaties and wading around the shallow end of the pool. Alex, do you not know how to swim? However you do it, the summer <laughs> is a time to enjoy the warmer weather. Are we discriminating against our friends in the Southern Hemisphere? Well, they'll have their time, right? They can just listen to this episode in a couple of months. Exactly. We'll re-release it. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so some planets in our solar system are taking this lesson to the extreme. And today we'll focus on two astrobytes that describe a much toastier time in the history of our solar neighborhood. Let's fire up these intro questions. First, Will, Kirsten, what is the scientific definition for temperature? So the scientific definition of temperature is probably not exactly what most people think of when they start thinking of temperature. I personally think of heat and how toasty something feels, but it's just the measurement of the average kinetic energy of particles. And heat is actually how much of this energy is transferred. So it's like a transferring of this temperature, I suppose. So you could have particles potentially with a very high kinetic energy, but not transferring much of that energy to the things around it. And so you would not have a lot of heat, but you would still have a high temperature. Is that right? Yeah, theoretically. But in a lot of situations, high temperatures mean high heat. It's like a give and take. Alex, I'll give you an example of one like you're thinking about in a couple of minutes. Great. Okay, next question. What's the hottest place in the universe that we know of? Mm. Uh, so in the universe, there's like in the constellation of Virgo, there's this cluster of galaxies with the delightful name of RXJ1347 that are crashing into each other. And so as they merge, they have this like fiery hot cloud of gas surrounding them at around 300 million Kelvin. So for reference, what is the temperature at the center of the sun? The temperature at the center of the sun is around 10 million Kelvin. Okay. So wow. it's quite a bit hotter. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that's potentially the hottest place in the universe. What about here on Earth? Right. Well, it depends on where you want to measure. So the absolute hottest anywhere on Earth or underground would be at the core of Earth, which is about 6,000 Celsius. If you care about the surface, which is true for most of us because that's where we spend our time, it's still not clear 
what record you might care about because the surface temperature of Earth is slightly different than the near surface air temperature. So when you think about the record that's held at Furnace Creek Ranch in Death Valley, the hottest place on Earth, that's actually the air slightly above the ground that was measured at uh, 134.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Unfortunately, those are the units because the measurement was made in 1913. But the actual surface can get up hotter to about 180 Fahrenheit. The surface gets a little hotter than the near surface air because the sun directly hits the surface of Earth. You can also get temperatures in geothermal vents near the bottoms of oceans that reach hundreds of degrees, right? That is true as well, yes. If you're thinking about a place in the universe that would have very high temperature but fairly low heat, the upper atmospheres of planets would be a very good example because the particles are so diffuse that they don't actually transfer their high temperatures very well and space is pretty cold. That makes me think of the outer parts of the sun. Yes. That's really diffuse as well. Mm-hmm. Right. The corona is about a million Kelvin. And nobody knows how it's heated up. The solar heating problem is one of the biggest unsolved problems in heliophysics. But because it's so diffuse, it doesn't actually convey that much heat. So maybe that's the optimal place to go sunbathing at. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Ask the Parker Solar Probe. It's, it's pretty freaking warm. <laughs> I don't think that was its primary mission, though, to go sunbathing. Maybe they should change its mission, you know. The extended mission. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... You started to dabble a little bit into heating processes in the sun, but we're talking about planets in this episode. What are some of the different physical processes that can heat up a planet? Thinking in terms of the interior, which is what I always think about, there's a whole bunch of different processes that can heat it up, but there are two main ones, and then I'll mention fun, more exotic sort of ways to heat up your planet. The first one is just from planet formation in general. So you've got a whole bunch of these basically tiny baby planets, planet embryos, whacking each other. And that energy that they're hitting each other with, you end up getting this gravitational energy that really heats up your planet. And for these terrestrial-like planets, it'll heat it up so hot that you have iron and your mantle melting. So most of these planets are thought to go through this magma ocean phase where you have basically the whole planet is just lava and then the second way that's also long lasting is radioactive decay Mm. and there's a whole bunch of different ones that can keep your planet warm we still have some radioactive decay going on in earth but if you want to keep your planet really hot you can look at aluminum 26 which has a half-life of around a million years wow yeah And so the other more exotic ones are like induction, where basically you have your liquid iron core making this magnetic field that ends up heating up the inside of your planet. That's really cool. Most of the time you have to be pretty close to your star. And then also there's tides, so you can kind of stretch out your planet and deform it. And so that can also heat up your planet as well. Yeah, on the topic of tides, this isn't as important in Earth or the moon, but it does happen to one of Jupiter's moons, Io, which is how Io is so volcanically active. And it happens to Saturn's moon, Enceladus, which is how Enceladus is so volcanically active. The stresses of the tidal forces create pressure and temperature that then erupts. We love a volcanic planet. We love a good volcanic planet. That's true. Easy to get funding for missions to go explore them in additional detail. That is true. 
if you're wanting to connect to the actual atmospheres and like the surface of your planet instead of the interior, you can think about like stellar radiation, which is not where you're going to heat up the insides unless your planet's super close, but we'll know much more about the atmospheres and these sorts of things. Right. Yeah, that's what I study. So certainly I'm excited about heating planetary atmospheres. Right. So Kirsten, you gave some ideas of how a planet might form with heat. As it's in sort of its steady state, its atmosphere is heated and the heat is transported by a number of different mechanisms. So you learn sort of at a young age, there are three methods that heat can transport, radiation, convection, and conduction. And they're all present in the atmosphere, which is really cool. In the lower atmosphere, convection is the most efficient. The sunlight hits the surface, and like I mentioned before, heats the surface hotter than the near surface air. And so the hot air rises, it'll expand and cool, and you get convection. In the middle atmosphere, radiation is the most efficient. CO2 is a very effective radiator. So Earth has some CO2, Mars and Venus have a lot of CO2. So they're very effective at cooling their middle atmospheres. And then Earth has ozone, which is actually an absorber, so it heats a little bit. And then in the upper atmosphere, it's actually conduction is the most efficient. And so all of the extreme ultraviolet rays from the sun will get absorbed in the upper atmosphere and then conduct downward. But it's actually pretty inefficient, which is, again, why those upper atmospheric layers are really high temperature but don't contain that much heat because it's very inefficient at moving the heat because there are so few collisions among those particles. And in fact, under the surface, you also get these mechanisms. You get convection in the mantle. You get some conduction from sunlight hitting the surface. And radioactive decay, as you mentioned, Kirsten, provides the heat at the center. That's great. Both very thorough answers. <laughs> I like the kind of complementary bottom-up versus top-down approaches to heat transfer. That's great. We should really jump into these astrobites, but before we do, I just have one final question, and that is, how do we know the temperatures of planets? both inside and outside of our solar system. It depends on what part of the planets you care about. In terms of measuring atmospheric temperature, if you're lucky enough to send a spacecraft, like, say, the MAVEN spacecraft around Mars, it's so close it can actually measure in situ temperatures of the upper atmosphere and ionosphere. You can measure spectra. You can perform occultations. There are kind of three kinds, the radio occultations and then two others, one of which I do. And then you can do modeling. And the modeling will help you inform temperatures if you know about energy constraints. Energy in equals energy out, and then temperature relates to that equilibrium. You can model the photochemistry and observe it. And then if you want to measure the surface temperature, where you don't get nearly as much information, but if the object's farther away, you can measure the continuum radiation from a black body and identify what the peak is, and that'll give you a good idea of what the temperature is. And if you want to go subsurface, Kirsten, you could jump in there, but I think it involves seismology. Yeah, you got it right. So in terms of the internal heating, a lot of this is inferred as opposed to measured. So for specifically exoplanets, one of the ways that we do this is mostly through modeling and then understanding how much heat you're getting from its star. So that's how we would figure that out. Got it. Okay. It sounds incredibly complex. <laughs> and I'm excited to see how all of these pieces come together in practice. So we should jump into the astrobites first with Will in the hot seat to talk about our own planet's heated history. You got it. So the astrobite I'm presenting is called How a Moon-Sized Deep Impact Affected Early Life on Earth. 
and that is written by Roel Lefebvre. And the paper was written by Robert Citron and Sarah Stewart. It's been accepted to the Planetary Science Journal. Now this takes us all the way back to the Hadean Eon on Earth. I'm just going to take a quick aside. One of my favorite little rabbit holes to go down is learning all the geologic time subdivisions. So you have your eons, and they're subdivided into eras and into periods and epochs and then ages. And there's actually a really great poster produced by the Geological Society of America that we will link to. You can download and print and hang on your wall. It's, it's really beautiful and shows how the hierarchy works. But going back to the Hadean Eon, Hadean from the Greek Hades, so hellish, and that was the earliest period in Earth's history. And then after that, the Archaean period was when we know of the earliest life. And during the Hadean period, Earth was going through the late heavy bombardment. So there are tons of rocks hitting the Earth constantly from the outer solar system. Earth was still really hot, molten on the surface in parts. We actually have some rocks called zircons that have been dated to this time period about 4.4 billion years ago. So there's actually some geologic evidence. But it's, it's not a great place because the primordial atmosphere of Earth had already been escaped and then was being replaced by bombarding particles and outgassing. So it was very unstable. And there was a solid surface maybe for some part of the time, but not all the time. So this sounds like not a great time for life to form and evolve. But presumably out of this, something happened that then gave way to the earliest life. What was that thing? Right. So there is some new evidence that the first life might have emerged during the Hadean period, even though previously it's been thought that that wasn't possible. And it comes from this idea, as the title of the Astrobite suggests, that you need a giant impact or impacts. And that would have coincided with around the time the moon was formed. It's believed that the moon formed from a giant impact or impacts during this period. There are really three theories. The largest held, most long-standing theory, the giant impact hypothesis, is that a Mars-sized object named Thea crashed into the Earth, knocked up a lot of material, it coalesced rather quickly, formed the moon. It's not a great theory. It's got some issues, especially in recent years. And in one of our earliest episodes, we talked about the problems with this. Uh, and one of my pet peeves is giant impacts are often invoked to explain things we don't understand in the solar system. It's like every planet had to have had a giant impact. Or like when you're looking for an excuse for why you didn't finish your homework, like the giant impact <laughs> last week. That's what I usually invoked in high school. <laughs> Reasonable. The most recent theory to come along to explain the moon formation is called the Synestia theory. This is really new and a lot of people do not support it. Wikipedia defines a Synestia as a hypothesized, rapidly spinning, donut-shaped mass of vaporized rock. Okay, so spinning, donut-shaped rock. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think of this giant donut spinning around in space. I support this theory. <laughs> On the basis of it being rad. <laughs> it's whack. <laughs> okay, so Will... What theory do the authors of this paper support? <laughs> well, they don't say specifically that they try to endorse a theory, but they do use the giant impact theory and assume that it's true. It is the most widely held theory and, you know, been around the most. So if we assume that this Mars-sized Thea planet crashed into Earth, that seems really unfavorable for life. But actually, when you think about what it takes to form life, you realize that 
these giant collisions could provide just what we need. So we, we don't know exactly what could form life, but our best guess is you need uh, amino acids and RNA. Those are the first building blocks. They're the simplest to create from inorganic compounds, and they can be created spontaneously, some research shows. So you don't need oxygen because early Earth did not have oxygen. That was created by bacteria. That did not create the bacteria. So you don't need oxygen. You sort of need the opposite of oxygen. You need a reducing atmosphere. So we think about all planetary atmospheres either oxidizing, they have oxygen, or reducing. They mostly have things bonded with hydrogen. So what do you mean by reducing atmosphere here? Yeah, this is a chemistry term, and it depends on which is being used as an electron acceptor, either oxygen or hydrogen. A lot of atoms, a lot of molecules will bond with either, whichever one is more available. So, for example, the oxidizing atmospheres today are Earth and Mars. They have more oxygen available than hydrogen. The reducing atmospheres are all the giant planets and Titan. And then Venus is weird. It's got a little bit of both in the lower atmosphere versus the upper atmosphere. But you need a reducing atmosphere to make these precursors to life. And so the giant impact actually could have made Earth's atmosphere reducing by knocking out the core material onto the surface and into the atmosphere. And so this deep core material would give the atmosphere the properties it needs. So how did the authors study in greater detail the kind of upwelling or bringing of deep material to the surface that you would need in order to reproduce the type of early atmosphere we think the Earth had? Great question. So what they did is they ran a model. They ran a smooth particle hydrodynamic simulation. So they basically simulated crashing giant rocks into Earth, varying the mass, the velocity, and the angle, simulating the mantle and the core and how they would evolve, and then seeing if there's enough core material on the surface that would make the atmosphere reduce and give it those properties. So there's a lot of great simulations of impacts you can see from this paper. So what did they end up finding? What they found is that in order to move core material all the way to the surface, you need at least a moon-sized impactor. That's pretty big, but not quite as big as Thea. The problem is impacts this big will vaporize the oceans. Even a smaller one would have done that. And it would melt the surface. So if you had life on Earth, it would sterilize it. That, that's, that's definitely not good. That seems to be a contradiction. That, that's kind of where we're starting to get to a problem, which is the conditions that would create life would also destroy life. So it would have to be one of these Goldilocks situations where you produce the conditions for life and then you have nothing more left to sterilize it. Or the theory's wrong and everything needs to be retested. Are they arguing that you start out with some certain type of atmosphere and then this collision will bring it to a reducing atmosphere? Like change the composition enough such that you're able to start producing life? Or is it saying that you don't have any atmosphere and then you have this massive collision which mixes a bunch of things together and you create an atmosphere anew that matches the composition you would need? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. All planets in the solar system form with about the same atmosphere, basically made of hydrogen and helium because that's the stuff the solar system formed with. But the small planets are too low mass to hold on to it. So it escapes and the giant planets hold on to it, which is why they're mostly hydrogen and helium. So the Earth lost its primordial atmosphere. It got a secondary atmosphere provided by impacts. 
and all of the like subsurface outgassing. And so that secondary atmosphere could have been made into a reducing atmosphere. That could have created life. And then about hundreds of millions to a billion years later, with oceans, that life would have made Earth's atmosphere oxygenized. And that's sort of our tertiary atmosphere that we have today. Does that answer your question? It does, for sure. That's fascinating. I know that it's kind of a conundrum where you can basically kill off the life that you created, but did they suggest like how you could end up keeping the life or is it just, ah, you know, we could have killed them? (laughs) Well, if the impactor were smaller, it would not sterilize the surface of Earth, but it would not bring core material to the surface. So if you already have life and your impactor is like a tenth the radius of the moon, the life will survive the impact. But if there's no life, it will not create the conditions strong enough to create life. That's sort of the weird irony of this, is the impactor large enough to create life would also kill life, but maybe not the life it could create. You see what I'm saying? Ah, I see. So maybe we had some little bacteria guys that were starting out. Those dudes died, but then we got another generation of cooler bacteria guys that ended up being us. Maybe. 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 Yeah, because if in this case, the first existence would be untestable, right? So we would never know. That's so cool. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this paper. This was a really great bite. First bite of our new series of Astro Sound Biology. Mm. But now we should move on to our steamy space sound of the fiery Fortnite. So close your eyes and let me know what you think this is. This is a weird one. Yeah, are we sure that that is a space sound? (laughs) That is an astrophysics sound. It just happens to sound like human language. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Purely coincidental. All right, so I'm going to throw out there, this is a uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence song. All right, what do you think, Kirsten? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that sounds like a really good guess. I feel like I'm going to be completely wrong at this, though, because I've never guessed at a space sound. But No, that's okay. We're wrong most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Like, the sound cup building on itself, like, you know how, like, with different layers. Mm. So 
I don't know. It makes me think of some sort of like formation or something like that. I don't know. This is actually the orbital motions of Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars sonified. Beautiful. So Mm. the pitch is highest for Mercury and gets lower as you go outward to Mars. And a note is played every time a planet completes a full orbit. The sonification, unsurprisingly, is done by Matt Russo's team at System Sounds. And apparently, after sonifying the orbits, the team thought that the sound was most similar to the Radiohead song True Love Waits. And so they got a Toronto musician named Tom Gill to sing the lyrics of that song over the background sonification. Oh, wow. That is so cool. (laughs) That's fabulous. Yeah, and actually there was this kind of like ominous undertones at the very beginning Mm -hmm. before you heard the orbits of Mercury, etc. And those were compiled from the orbits of actual asteroids in the asteroid belt all played at the same time ah, which is nice. wild. the ominous asteroids yeah. yeah so this is a very artistic sonification fabulous really really good one thank you and this is actually a very special episode because we have a second space sound. no way yep oh wow so if you would both close your eyes for a second time and guess what I am about to play. Seatbelts, everyone! Please let this be a normal field trip with a friend. No way! By cruising on that main street, you're relaxed and feeling good. Next thing that you know, you'll see it. Push in my neighborhood, surfing on the sine wave, swinging through the stars. Take a left at your Okay, that is very clearly the theme song for the Magic School Bus, and I played it because Kirsten told me to. Kirsten, why did I play that theme song? This bite, it really was giving me Magic School Bus vibes, and as a 90s baby, I I really had to just lean in. (laughs) Um, So in honor of that, I want you both to strap in, because we're going to Venus. Yes. Let's do it. This bite is called From Radio Mystery to Volcanic History, Dating Venus's Lava Flows with Temperature-Sensitive Materials by Sarah Warren, which is by the paper Brosier et al., 2021. So a lot of the times when we think of Venus, we think of really hot greenhouse gases that are made basically not habitable. We can't live there. And another interesting thing about Venus is that they have temperatures hot enough to where it can melt lead, and the atmosphere is so corrosive that even robotic missions would fail once they entered the atmosphere. So our little robot buddies would not live. But the interesting thing here with Venus is that we really want to understand what's going on on the surface. So back in the 90s, some astronomers found that there were volcanoes on Venus, which is pretty cool. And volcanoes most of the time equal, at least for Earth, tectonic activity. So this is like a super interesting question because, A, no one really knows where our plate tectonics came from. People are trying to figure it out. Looking at Mars, we know that it's a stagnant lid, which means that there are no plate tectonics and nothing is really happening within the crust, there's no movement, right? But Venus is really weird. 
It doesn't exactly match up with Earth, so we don't think that it has plate tectonics. So the question here is, could there be some sort of tectonics that aren't exactly plate tectonics happening on Venus? Because it's it's got volcanoes. But the issue with Venus, like I said, is that the that this atmosphere is super thick. So if you can't see beyond the atmosphere, how do these scientists know that there are volcanoes on the surface? That's where radio observations come in. I am sad to say that we do not have our radio astronomer here when we need her. (laughs) But yeah, so they used radio observations using NASA's Magellan mission. They used these radio waves, and they're long enough to penetrate through the atmosphere and get to the surface. Because these radio waves reflect off the surface, we're able to make these topological maps and see different features on Venus. We also end up getting information about thermal emission of the planet called emissivity. The emissivity tells you how good a material is at emitting and absorbing radiation at a particular temperature when compared to a black body. To give you an idea of what most of the emissivity of Venus's surface is, it's at around 0.85. However, there's something really peculiar about the emissivity of Venus, particularly at these peaks of these volcanoes. Back in the 90s, actually, they found that the peaks are over two times lower than the surface. So they have an emissivity of 0.35. And this does correspond to a temperature, whereas the surface is around 800 Kelvin, these peaks are around 700 to 730 Kelvin. If I'm understanding correctly, it seems like there's a high variation in the emissivity? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to give you some context, on Earth, the lowest emissivity is 0.6, which You know, when you're thinking in terms of this 0.8 range, that's not that much lower. And on Mars the lowest emissivity is 0.75, which also isn't super low at all. So this is really, really weird. And this is what this paper wanted to look at. So this led them to basically two different conclusions. So whatever is causing this temperature-sensitive emissivity changes is either something that is super unique to a material that is exclusive to these Venus volcanoes, or it could be something like ferroelectric materials. These ferroelectric materials or minerals are highly conductive, and they're thought to be able to condense out of the atmosphere as metallic frost and interact with the surface, which would then make them temperature sensitive. So something is causing the surface to emit, well, radio waves specifically, more than would be expected. And so these metallic frosts could basically provide that sort of emissivity difference? Yes. So, yeah, this paper really wanted to take this idea of ferroelectric minerals and really try and see if this could be what's causing these high emissivity changes. And Mm -hmm. so that's what they did. They first looked at these altitude emissivity changes. So in terms of around four different volcanoes, which the volcanoes have really cool names that I would definitely butcher 
if I said. So you guys should totally check out the astrobite. But what they did is they looked to see how the emissivity was changing with altitude, and they noticed something quite interesting. These emissivity changes seem to correspond to different lava flows. So they did what any good planetary scientist would do, and they classified these lava flows by texture. How do they know anything about the texture of the lava flows on a different planet? <laughs> like, there are a lot of pieces that you have to put together in order to be able to say a statement like that. Yeah, it's actually super neat. From the radio backscatter, they were able to tell whether the texture was smooth, mottled, or hummocky. <laughs> hummocky. Hummocky, yes. Huh. Yeah. New favorite word. Yeah, I gotta look that up. So the idea is that each lava flow might have been at a different temperature or cooled at a different rate and moved a little bit further or something like that. There, There's some processes going on that would change the way that, I guess, it hardened. So what they ended up doing next is they determined like geologically plausible ferroelectric minerals that might be found on Venus. And since ferroelectrics are a class of materials with electric properties that change once they reach a critical temperature known as the Curry temperature, so we're still looking for this, this ferroelectric mineral that could make the shift. And for Curie temperatures around 700 Kelvin, perovskite oxides, which are perovskites basically like rock on Earth. So what you typically hear in terms of like the mantle is perovskite. So that's kind of that rock that we're thinking of. And these oxides make good candidates for explaining this low emissivity in the highlands or the summits. The interesting thing about perovskite oxides is that just small variations to their composition can lead to around 10 Kelvin shifts in their Curie temperatures. So this could be a very plausible thing to explain why you're getting different emissivities for these different flows as well. And that's really awesome because it allows us to date when the lava flows occur with respect to one another, and then potentially figure out when the most recent volcanic activity could occur or search for active volcanoes today, which is kind of cool. Is there any potential way to tie all this information back to whether Venus has tectonic activity or not? Yeah, I'm dying to know. Maybe. The answer is maybe. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's always the answer with papers. Maybe. You got a hedge. Yeah. So in the paper, they do mention that this is the right direction if we want to really understand what's happening in Venus's interior. So... Just being able to find whether or not a volcano is active could point at like tectonic activity that could be currently happening. So it's a first step of many. So maybe, maybe there is tectonic activity on Venus. Fair enough. Well, we'll have to do an update when that paper comes out. <laughs> I would love to see that paper. It is a really interesting way of exploring what the surface of Venus might be. And I'm intrigued by the chemistry as well as these iron frosts that I've never heard of before. And <laughs> I, I still want to understand how that could make sense of it all. But it is really neat peering through the clouds. Yeah, for sure. 
you know, we could go like a two-parter in temperature and do like a frost episode. Oh, that's true. Yeah, like a, a super cooled episode. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. That would be fun. Okay, well, we still have to finish this episode. And I think we probably don't have a ton of time for discussion. But we should at the very least do one-sentence summaries. So first, thank you very much, Kirsten, for bringing us that afterbite. Let's kick it over to Will to summarize his bite. Impacts could have created the conditions for life to form on Earth or completely sterilized the existing life, which maybe suggests that life on Earth could have come into being many different ways. And Kirsten, how about yours? Emissivity can help date volcanic eruptions on Venus, which is the first step to understanding where volcanoes are erupting and if Venus even has tectonic activity. Beautiful. Well, we don't have a ton of time, but we don't have no time for a discussion question. So let me ask this one that I was wondering. Does a planet need an atmosphere to stay hot? Hmm. It depends on the planet. Okay, elaborate. For these really close-in planets, no. 100% not. You can have, like... On planets with orbits of, like, you know, less than 10 days, you can easily keep your planet super toasty without an atmosphere. Actually, most of those get their atmosphere blown away. But in terms of keeping you nice and comfy on further out orbits, I might just send that over to Will, because I personally (laughs) don't think that you can. So I think there's a correlation, but maybe not causation. You could imagine a large planet without an atmosphere that might be able to stay hot, but they don't happen that way because if they're large enough to stay hot for a long time, they're massive enough to hold on to an atmosphere, including their primordial atmosphere. Take the giant planets. They're still hugely hydrogen and helium because their cores are massive enough to hold it all together, and they stay pretty hot under the surface and in the upper atmospheres. So... Does it need an atmosphere? No. Does it always have an atmosphere? Yes. Hmm. Fair enough. Okay. Valuable distinction, it sounds like. What about this one? Do all planets start their lives molten? I would say yes. So giant planets might be slightly different, but in terms of terrestrial planets, yes. You would start off molten and then cool just because of the amount of energy that you're getting from these impacts. However, for giant planets... At some point, the formation changes, so you're getting these, like, dust particles onto it. So I don't Hmm. know about those if they would actually end up being molten, but then they're mostly gas as well. Yeah, I was thinking, like, debris disks could coalesce without being molten. You know, the moon was not molten when it formed because it would have formed from a debris disk around Earth. So it would have been warm, but I don't think it would have been molten. You know, it's hard to imagine planets in the solar system not being molten. But if, like, a real planet 9 existed in the outer solar system, it very well could have accreted after the solar system had cooled. So I would say it is possible. Interesting. Okay. And then this next question sounds like it's going to be tied in very closely to the formation mechanism. But how dramatically can a planet evolve in temperature over its lifetime? And is there kind of like a characteristic temperature curve that most planets follow? Well, at some point, its core energy will be depleted. 
however warm it started off, like a hot potato cooling down, the larger it is, the longer it's going to take to cool, which is basically the difference between Earth and Mars's history. Mars cooled a lot faster and is a lot less massive, so it, it got boring, lost its atmosphere, and now we send <laughs> rovers to it because we can land on it. <laughs> Poor Mars getting trashed. <laughs> yeah, but it's easy to get to. We love it. The only caveat I would say is if you stick the planet really close to its star, you can keep it nice and toasty mm. and not have very many variation changes. But once again, these are rare planets. And does it really want to be melty that long? You know, like, is that fun for the planet? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what does the planet want? Nobody's asking these questions. <laughs> What's good for the planet? the real questions that concludes episode 57 of astro sound bites hot planet summer if you're listening to this at the beach with your toes between the sand you're going to need some reading material don't worry we've got you covered you can find the two astro bites we talked about today in the links in the show notes you know this already but we're on apple podcasts spotify google podcasts soundcloud audible and amazon music We hope you listen, leave a comment, and tell your friends about something that you learned from the show today. Thanks for listening. Congratulations, Kirsten, on your first Astro Bite Covered. Yay, thanks. (laughs) Woo-woo. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Called the Synestia. Synestia. There's not a T in there. Synestia theory. I'm just going to say Synestia a few times, and then you can cut it in. Synestia theory. This one's called the Synestia theory. See if you can dub that over. Um, I'm doing that for half of this episode. <laughs> <laughs>